0: welcome to the PA books podcast PA books is a production of PCN the Pennsylvania cable network this program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people history sports business nature and politics we hope you enjoy this podcast This week on PA Books, Paul Shackle, author of Remembering Latimer.
1: Paul Shackle, author of Remembering Latimer, Labor, Migration and Race in Pennsylvania Anthracite Country, you write in your book, Latimer is the largest labor massacre in nineteenth century America, yet it has been mostly forgotten in the national public memory. Why has it been mostly forgotten?
0: Well that's that was the key, and that's the key for the for the whole book. You know, why has Latimer been been forgotten? And I think about some of the great strikes in American history, um, you know, the Haymarket Riot. I mean, people that's been well documented. Um, and and uh, the Ludlow Massacre, people know it very well. And, and so it was really interesting when I started reading history books and looking for Latimer and they weren't in there. Um, reading books about labor history and labor strikes, Latimer's missing. And so um, I looked at Howard Zinn's book, and Howard Zinn wrote *The People's History of the United States*, which is very much a left-of-center perspective. And he writes a lot about labor and, and labor history. And it wasn't in there either. Um, it, it was only a footnote when describing the sinking of the Maine. Okay, so that was that was kind of un, unusual. So, um, so I thought this was something that we really had to look at. Um, it's, it's one of the largest labor massacres in, in U.S. history, and, um, and it's not in the national public memory. So why could that be? Well, part of it is that um, Latimer was pretty much on the rural front, in a rural area, and it got some coverage uh... the massacre in the in the court hearings got some coverage by uh... local as well as some national papers but then it disappears about a year after and people don't really write about it afterwards and and if they do the perspectives of of the um, of the massacre changes o- over time um, was it because uh, because it was sort of out in the country was it because these are mostly um the people who died here, were they immigrants and uh, who did not speak English and therefore their voices were not told um, and they couldn't tell their story? Um, Or was it something related to the battle between labor and capital um, where labor wanted the incident to be known and the UMWA wanted the incident to be known but capital fought to against memorializing the victims of of Latimer. So you have all these different variables in um, creating this historical amnesia where it disappears for a while, but it disappears on the national scene. But what's amazing to me is that the story was kept alive and it was kept alive by the local people. It was kept alive by people telling stories one generation after another to the next generation and to the next generation. And um, and people knew about it, the local people knew about it. Um, and so it, it was something that I thought was important to the local community and therefore it was important to make it part or and part of the larger national public memory. And that's what this book is, is trying to do. Um, it's taking these memories from the local people, it's taking some, of the literature that didn't quite make it on the on the national level, and and putting it all together to to make the story uh, about Latimer um, relevant and important for the for the national public. Just a little bit of background. Where is Latimer? So Latimer is in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's um, just outside of uh, outside of Hazelton. So when the coal patch towns are are being created. You know these towns are being developed in um, in areas where there there are coal mines. So Hazelton was a big commercial centre, but Latimer was just outside of it. There's a mine there, so the company builds some houses, and then um, and so when you go into Latimer today, there's a set of double houses um, a- as you enter town, and then on the periphery there were these little enclaves um, where the new immigrants came and where the new immigrants lived. Um, So what I found in the case of of Latimer is that when the new immigrants came in, there wasn't housing for them. So the company said, there's a plot of land, build your house. And so there's these amazing descriptions of this housing for the new immigrants. Um, Were they, were they, it's the Century Magazine in 1898 describes these little enclaves, and they they describe them as buildings and shacks and roofs uh, slanted at different levels, and and doorways without doors and windows without windows, and there's no symmetry, which is a major part of of uh, English architecture about that time, but there's little shacks or shanties in these in these enclaves where um, where there wasn't much sanitation. You know, people would throw their slop in the alleys and in and, and the streets and, and so forth. And that's what a lot of the early coal patch towns were like that were developing in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties. So northeastern Pennsylvania is an area where um, coal, coal was was the big issue there, and uh, and coal became what was called black diamonds, right? Because there was money associated with coal, and uh, and so it's not until it, coal is first discovered in the 1760s, 1770s, and historians will debate whether it's 1768 or 1775, but what's important is about in the 1820s is when coal becomes a major product where people are um, excavating the coal and beginning to dig deep into mines to extract coal and then start sending the coal to the East Coast to heat houses, to to run um businesses and industries and um and by the 1850s coal coal is king and um there's several men who really make a, a lot of money and they make a lot of money on the backs of these new immigrants who are coming into the country okay
1: where are the immigrants from
0: and and it cha- the immigrants come from different parts of the world depending on the time and depending on the social and political circumstances at the time, the um, the earliest coal miners were coming from England and Scotland. And so, when I say the earliest coal miners, that's the 1820s, 1830s, or so. And by the 1840s, it's the Irish, and the Irish come into the region, and um, and they become the laborers who are working hard and, and uh, digging coal in the, in the coal mines. And they're associated with the story of the Molly McGuire's, which we could go into a little bit later. Um, but then by the 1880s and 1890s, people from Southern and Eastern Europe are coming into, uh, into Northeastern Pennsylvania. They're being recruited to come into Northeastern Pennsylvania. We recruited
1: uh, from Europe to come to Pennsylvania?
0: Yeah. So. Um, so coal miners are sending agents into Europe to bring people to Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, not, not every coal operator did that, but a lot of coal operators did. And, um, and so there was a strategy, and the strategy was to import as many laborers as you could to the point where there was a lot of people who were hungry and a lot of people who were not employed. And so the strategy was to have this large workforce partially unemployed, so that when people went on strike, or if, the, or if people were killed in the mines, or if they were injured in the mines, it was easy to replace them. So these workers, these new immigrants who were coming in, were seen as almost like cogs in a wheel, right? And and so that they they were easily replaceable. And uh, and so what we have in the 18. And, 80s and 1890s is this massive immigration coming in from Eastern Europe and and, and Southern Europe and um, to the point where people are afraid of them and people are afraid of them because they speak a different language, they wear different clothes, um, they worship differently than the quote unquote English speakers and so, um, so we begin to see all this xenophobic fear developing, too, in, in, in that area. I
1: want to point out something. You have a chart in your book that is from the, uh, the U.S. Immigration Commission from 1911, and it lists the, uh, the race preferred by mining operators for specific occupations. And for a pick miner, the lowest level is American English, Welsh, Irish, but then Lithuanian, Polish, Slovak, Ruthenian, Belgian, Italian. And then the fire bosses are American English and Scotch, engineers, German, American, English, Irish, foremen, The higher
0: levels tend to be the ones who are more, more likely to speak English. And Of course, right? And, and so, um, and the new immigrants are the ones who are at the, at the bottom of, of, of that. Um, and so what you're, what you're looking at is a report that was created by the US Senate in 1911 and that pretty much summarizes the xenophobic fears and the and the creation of hierarchies based on race that was developing uh, mostly in the discipline of anthropology in the 1870s and, and 80s where um, where people are categorized based on skin color or, or places of origin. And if you look at that chart too, it, it even separates the Italians from the northern Italians to the and the southern Italians and. And um, people are coming from southern Italy because of the strict, from the poverty, you know, and, and they want to leave Italy, and and that's partially my heritage too, where my family came from southern Italy o- over here. So what's so this xenophobic fear and this and the scientific racism that's being developed during this time period um, creates these organizations um, that are afraid of the new immigrants, and, and they're afraid that their American culture is gonna change, um, that they won't be, they won't have this white Anglo culture anymore. And, uh, and so Teddy Roosevelt commissioned the Senate to do this study, and the study is 42 volumes. It's like this, okay? How much of it and, did you read? <laughs> well, I read bits and pieces, but I did not read 42 <laughs> volumes. But when you start reading it, um, it's, it's amazing to see how that language is so coded with racism, based on our modern perspectives of race and, and, and racism, where uh, people from Southern and Eastern Europe are not considered human in some points it's in some parts and so um, can they actually work in the minds you know can they take instructions are they intelligent enough and these were all questions that 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 develop and there's this one volume there's volume five of that immigration report um, which was developed by anthropologists so I'm an anthropologist right and so it's just for me it's well shocking um, but also sad to see how anthropology played a role in creating these racial hierarchies like this. So, um, so, so that's what's governing the, the principles of, of the hiring um, and, and the hierarchies in the, in the labor force um, there.
1: So we, your book is about the
0: Latimer massacre, so we probably shouldn't get too far into
1: this without talking about what the Latimer massacre was, what happened that day.
0: Sure, okay, um, so here we have, and, and what we just talked about was perfect, because we have these different racial categories um, that have been created, um, and that's part of the American culture, the American psyche. And, um, and so a lot of these new workers who are from Eastern and, and Southern Europe are doing the same work as the english speakers right um but they're being paid less they're being paid 10 15 percent less than the the english speakers and this is a point of contention and the and and there's lots um a lot of people have written letters and notes and you've seen newspapers how the um hungarians who are the eastern europeans how the hungarians are willing to work at far Less wages. Well, you know, after a while, they get ticked off. They, if they're doing the same amount of work, they, they want the, the same am, amount of, of wage. And so there's a series of incidents that, that occur um, in, in 1897. Uh, the state legislators um, passed the Campbell Act, and the Campbell Act is also known as the Alien Tax Act. And the Alien Tax Act is a tax on foreign workers, who um, who are not U.S. citizens. It's a three cents tax, and three cents per day. Three cents per day. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so, this is 1897. We're just coming out of a major recession. Um, the coal miners are working two to three days. A week they're not working five or six days a week they're working two or three days a week they're making about a dollar fifty a day the, and when they get their paychecks they line up at at the uh, to get their paychecks and um sometimes when they get their paychecks they're left with nothing or they owe money to the company store right there's that song i owe my soul to the company store and so they have no money and then next thing you know there's they're being deducted three cents a day. And um, they're not too happy about that, okay? And then there's some other incidents where where one of the mule boys gets knocked over the head. You know, the mule boys are protesting because they have to transport their mules at a a longer distance in order to save money. But now they're working two hours more a day uh, without any compensation, and um, so there's that incident, um, and there's striking, and the uh, one of the foremen actually clubs one of the kids over the head with an axe, and so the boys strike, and um, and then other miners strike, and then there's some agreement where there's a little bit of wage increase there, but then so there's a bit of peace but that peace doesn't last too long because once the miners see that the money's being taken out of their paychecks that three cents a day they go on strike all around the hazelton area and uh, and so the goal of the miners is to close down all the mines and their goal on uh, September 10th was to close all the mines owned by Calvin Pardee, Pardee, okay? Uh, Who owns mines in in the Harwood area, which is south of Hazleton, as well as mines in in Latimer. Um, John Fahey comes to town, to to Harwood. John Fahey uh, represents the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America. The United Mine Workers of America supported the Campbell Act, the tax, the three cents tax. They did? They did, yeah, yeah. Why? <laughs> um, well, their goal, so the UMWA was a new organization. It was developed in uh, in 1890. And their goal was to protect the English speakers and their jobs and to, and to protect them from what they called the invading hordes who were taking jobs away and who were working for lower wages and therefore, um, depressing the wages, right? And so the UMWA um, went to Harrisburg and they were a major supporter of the Campbell Act. Okay. Was there a union at the time that, that represented the u- immigrants? No, so they were not organized, which is which is fascinating. So Fahey comes into town and um, he is greeted fairly well by the workers and um, and he talks to them about organizing, and he talks to them about joining the UMWA. But what he also does is he, um, he also has some people who could speak Polish and Italian, too, who are then translating what he's saying to the, to the new immigrants because most of them didn't speak English. Okay, and, um, and they more or less get behind him, and hundreds of Miners joined the union on on the spot. Um, Fahes tells them about how to protest, how to march, and to march to Latimer um, peacefully so um, so that so to me that's stunning that they quickly embrace the UMWA after the UMWA um, supported this this tax so the workers, it's it's a Sunday, late Sunday morning. Um, the workers leave Harwood, we think, with about 250 men. And as they start marching towards Latimer, um, <clears throat> it grows to close to 400 men. But before they actually get to Latimer, um, they meet the sheriff, Sheriff Martin, and his posse on the outskirts of, of Hazleton. And they were going to Watch through Hazelton, and the sheriff said, "You can't go here," and and there's a bit of a kerfuffle, and um, one of the sheriff's men takes one of the two American flags that the miners are holding and and rips it rips it up, which is quite stunning, um, and one of the sheriff's men clubs one of the miners, and there's reports of somebody having a a broken arm and somebody else with some other broken limbs and the mayor comes out and says you know you could have safe passage around the city you know why don't you go this way and they continue their march to Latimer the sheriff and his posse get on these trolleys and they race to Latimer to meet the, the workers and as they're on their the trolleys, people hear stories about the posse and and what they're saying, and some are, are talking about shooting and killing. You know, on their way to to Latimer to, to greet the um, the miners. So, the miners start entering the town, and they're on the outskirts of town, and the sheriff and his posse and the posse are, are men who are. are who are deputized, um, they're joined by the coal and iron police, which are um, controlled by the the coal company. And they form a line in front of a house, which is also in front of um, one of the coal mines, uh, which is where the workers want to go to close down the mine. And they, they create this really interesting formation where they have a line here and then there's the trolley tracks over here with a three-foot berm. And the miners are walking into this um, position, which <coughs> uh, in the military you would call a, a flanking position because all the sheriff's men are here. You have this three-foot uh, berm over here. So it's like they're going into this funnel, okay? Um, they're, they're going into this funnel. The sheriff comes out and greets the miners and says, he, he asks them to uh, call their march off and they, the miners respond and say, but this is a public road and we have a, a right to be here as they're holding an American flag, as they are unarmed. And nobody, the, there's no clear picture of what happens next. Um, people from the back, are pushing forward because they want to move forward. Um, Somebody yells fire, um, and there's different stories about who actually yells fire. And they start firing into the group of men. um, Several fall immediately. Um, And after that initial firing, the men start running away. And as they start running away, the sheriff and, well, the posse, start following them, and they shoot them, and they shoot them down in the backs, okay? 19 men end up dying at the site, and we think an additional six people die afterwards from wounds, and when they do the autopsy of the men who died, um, 19 of them died from shots either on the side or or in the back, so most of them are being hunted down, okay? As, as they're as they're running away and so um, so it's a major tragedy you know um, it's it's an episode that happens in about two minutes. Um, people describe it as like hearing firecrackers, you know just a bunch of shots going off in a span of of two minutes and uh, and people some people come to the rescue of the of the dying um, there's a story of of school teacher there's a schoolhouse nearby and some of the men were actually running towards the schoolhouse and the sheriff's men went on top of the berm which is actually here they went on top of the berm and they fired um into the men towards the schoolhouse okay and uh, and again documentation saying how they died you know within feet of reaching the schoolhouse and the schoolhouse was riddled with, with bullets. The school teacher came out, um, she tore her petticoat and she tried to help one of the men who were shot um, in the stomach and by wrapping it together. Um, and um, and and the man died. She was later blacklisted for helping the um, helping the, the the man who who was who was dying. So, um, so it's, 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 a, it's a major tragedy that, that, that happens. Um, people are upset. People start protesting. Um, Fahey from the UMWA is telling the workers to be calm. There's a, another very interesting character in all this is Father Oust, A-U-S-T, A-U-S-T who, um, who comes to the aid of, of the... Um, of the workers, and during the funeral processions and and during the time of mourning, he talks to the uh, a lot to his parishioners to to be calm and not to take revenge and be peaceful, and um, and he ends up aiding the workers and the families late, later on. I mean, there's this wonderful <clears throat> for me. It's this really wonderful story about how the church came to. To the aid of, of these workers, and created an organization to help the families who have lost um, husbands and the you know the main the main breadwinners in in, in the family. Um, and I say it's a it's a wonderful story because when I've done research in other industrial places, like in the Northeast, um, sometimes the Catholic Catholic Church was in the back pockets of the industrialists. And they often preached about, you know, saying life here is okay. Um, you could work hard and be exploited, but your afterlife is, you know, you'll have a, a better afterlife. But um, but here, the the Catholic Church came to the rescue of, of these men, and and they um, they were at odds with capital. They were at odds with the with the coal barons and. They really made an effort to to rescue these these people and, and to help these people, and it's a tradition that that kept on going for for generations afterwards. And so, in the book, I have um, some quotes from bishops who come to Latimer later on in the 1970s and 1990s, and they talk about the poverty that's so prevalent in northeastern Pennsylvania. And um, and they talk about um, income in, inequity and how we need to pay attention to these things and and um, and so what's clear is that a, a lot of these clergy who come to Latimer in the 1970s and through the 90s are offspring of coal miners too, and so they really understand the plight of the miners and and what's going on with the miners, so. Uh. <clears throat> How was the incident reported in the newspapers at the time? The local newspapers, in particular, in Hazelton. So that's that's interesting too, is that um, is that there are different versions about what happened at at Latimer. So there's the local on the local level. There were pro-capital and pro-labor newspapers, mm-hmm. and so. Um, so the titles are are, are are very different and the descriptions are, are, are very different. And so, um, and, and so that's, that's the amazing thing about Latimer. And even to this day, people have different opinions about what happened at Latimer. Um, and was it a massacre or was it a riot, right? And, uh, and so, so the community was, was very divided. Were you, um, were you pro-labor, meaning were you uh, one of the miners or, or miners belonged to one of the miners' families or were you pro-capital, capital, you know, one of the businessmen in, in the community? And so the community, from based on what I've seen, was pretty much divided about how they viewed um, Latimer. Um, there were much, many more miners than there were Business owners in in, in in the area so there were um,
1: newspapers in Hazleton that were <coughs> unashamedly pro strikers
0: oh yeah 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 so there 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 were and on, knowing that on, the coal companies
1: controlled the town
0: but it was also the people who purchased the newspapers so they were also catering to the people who were purchasing the the newspapers too and so there were very different um, versions of that and then on the national level um, they were very divided, too.
1: I want to read you a couple quotes. You okay. have in here, the New York Times wrote that the sheriff's actions probably stopped an episode of widespread killing and looting. The Washington Star described the strikers as ignorant men and a dangerous class, and the Pittsburgh Gazette described the strikers
0: as vicious fellows. Doesn't that blow you away? <laughs> it blows me away. I mean, so so that, that shows you about... Is, it, what's really fascinating about that is that you have an incident of great magnitude, but yet there's very different perspectives of, of what it is. So it's how do we create history, right? And how do we report history? And there are very different perspectives on one event about how people are are, are described. And so um, so that's that's the fascination about about Latimer. And then you have the uh, Slovak language newspapers that um, you know that, that show the injustice of, of the whole thing, and they talk about the the murderers, and the murderers are the are the sheriff and his and his men at, at Latimer, and so um, so there's there's very different perspectives, and uh, and so that's really key to the story of of Latimer. It's key to the story of Latimer on September 10th. 1897 and still key to the story of Latimer today. Uh, People still have very different perspectives about what happened at Latimer.
1: Well, you're right about that and how there's a St. Stanislaus cemetery is where a lot of the people are buried and some of the markers have been vandalized or to this day. To this
0: day. Yeah, so, uh, and I was at a public meeting um, in Hazleton related to issues of of immigration and then I met a faculty member there from uh, from Wilkes College and he came up to me and he he said you know I grew up in Latimer and we started talking and he said you know um, I would sometimes visit the cemeteries the Saint Stanislaus cemetery and uh, people would vandalize the the grave markers of of the martyrs right and by Putting mud on the stones, um, so nobody took an axe to them or, or anything. But they would just sort of de- deface them, and and I didn't believe that at first. I mean, I, I it's believable, but uh, but then one day it was, I might have been in two thousand thirteen. I, I visited the cemetery. I try to visit the cemetery maybe once a year, and I take field school students there, and, and we talk about um, Latimer and. Um, and there was mud on on Father Oust's gravestone, and uh, and it's it's true. So people, and to me, that was a sign of disrespect of I think one of the heroes of Latimer. The, this man, Father Oust, came out and and worked really hard to to feed the people um, after they lost their their husbands to help. Help the families, and there was there was mud on his on his stone, and so that that continues today, um, and and it yeah. So it's hard to believe, and and so when I first started working up in northeastern Pennsylvania, which was two thousand nine, two thousand ten, um, people told me stories about how. There's still a division in parts of the community—not all of the community, but parts of the community—where um, people didn't socialize across these social boundaries. So you wouldn't get descendants of miners socializing with descendants of the coal operators necessarily. Is
1: it still based on ethnicity?
0: Um, it's based on ethnicity. It's—it's slow its well, actually, it's quickly disappearing the ethnic divides as. As there's a major white flight out of Hazelton and there's a new Latino population coming in and the newer generation um, is not paying as much attention to ethnic divides as maybe they did one or two generations ago.
1: I want to talk about that a little bit because it's a a part of your book. But uh, uh, as a follow up to the, the Latimer massacre, was that, did that kind of put an end to the union organizing in the area? Or did it spur it? Did it close down the mines? What happened after that?
0: Yeah, so the mines were, actually there's a great story. There was an attempt to reopen the mines immediately after the massacre. And there's this wonderful character named Mary Septak. Who- Is it Big Mary? Big Mary, she's known as Big Mary. So um, the men, some of the men start returning to the Latimer Mines and Big Mary um, gathers the women in the town and they have rolling pins and they have shovels and um, as the men start walking towards the mine they rush down the comb banks and they beat them and they keep the strike going for uh, about two more weeks before the National Guard finally disperses the the women so she's called Big Mary Um, they're called Amazon women right and what's fascinating throughout the whole coal country up there, women play a major role in strikes throughout the area so if you look at some of the newspapers, some of the regional newspapers up there um, you the, there's stories about women leading the strike, women keeping the the strike going and there 's no names to them, but they 're always called Amazon women you know and and, uh, and so that 's uh, so that's that, that's a, a fascinating story about how women are, are disappeared, but yet they did play a, a, a major role in, um, in in the strikes. To, uh, so to follow up your question, could you repeat your question? Oh well, what yeah. was the what was the upshot? Oh, the bit. upshot. yeah, sure. So um, so the men go go back to work, but the union begins to see uh, a major increase in enrollment. And it's John Mitchell, who's a major hero in, in northeastern Pennsylvania. There's a statue to him in, in Scranton. I think his birthday uh, is still a big day, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, there's, um, there's a John Mitchell day, which is October 29th, mm-hmm. which is the date of the settlement of the 1900 strike. So in the 1900 strike, um, John Mitchell says, you know, it's uh, I, I'm paraphrasing it here, but he says it's not Slavish coal, it's, it's not Italian coal, you know, it's American coal. And it was his, it was his way of, um, of trying to unify um, the, the workers and to, to break down the, the ethnic barriers. And it was 1900 where there was a successful strike AND EVEN MORE IMPORTANT, THERE WAS A STRIKE IN 1902, WHICH IS PROBABLY ONE OF THE MOST IMPORTANT AND WELL KNOWN STRIKES IN in AMERICAN LABOR HISTORY CALLED THE 1902 Anthracite COAL STRIKE. Um, AND IT WAS SUCCESSFUL ONLY BECAUSE THE UNION WAS ABLE TO INCORPORATE ALL THESE FOREIGN-BORN WORKERS. AND THEY WERE A MAJOR FORCE THAT THEY ACTUALLY HAD TO They actually made a lot of the major companies come in and and settle a strike. It was uh, Teddy Roosevelt who actually said, "Hey, you know, the Northeast is about to freeze. It's October. We don't have coal. Um, Industries are being impacted. You need to settle this." And so they agreed on a commission that would review the working conditions and 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 so forth. And there was a, a. a wage increase too. John Mitchell becomes a saint. He's a hero, and if you see pictures of John Mitchell, he has this high collar, and it makes him look very <laughs> priestly-like, you know. And wherever he walked and wherever he went in um, in northeastern Pennsylvania, he was greeted as though he was a hero or a saint or 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 a ma- or a martyr. So, um, so s- some historians may. Argue this point, but it was Latimer, where the UMWA saw that the foreign workers could be organized, and that they could play a major role. And it was at that point where they um, where they start to think twice about um, immigration and ethnicity and and uh, and the role of these foreign workers in, in in the union. So the UMWA grew after the Latimer strike. That the growth led to a successful 1900 strike and a very successful uh, 1902 strike. If you visit Latimer today, what do you see? You would, if you come in to Latimer from the western end, you come into the town and there's a fork in the road. And if the, the part on the left is Latimer Road, the part on the right is called Quality Road Uh, and there's meaning behind it, and so the locals uh, tell me that Quality Road is where the bosses' houses, the supervisor's houses were located, and the workers and their families were not allowed on Quality Road, okay? So there's that fork in the road, and as you enter town, there's a shale boulder um, right at at that fork, and the shale boulder is about um, eight feet tall, and the landscape around it is, is well-groomed. Um, there's some shrubs there and some, some lawn. And then there's a, um, there's a concrete path that leads up to, the, up to the boulder. And the boulder has a bronze pick and shovel attached to it. And that boulder also has a, a bronze plaque that's attached to it. And I just want to read what that bronze bronze plaque says. And it says, um, Latimer Massacre, September 10th, 1897. And then it states, It was not a battle because they were not aggressive, nor were they on the defensive because they had no weapons of any kind and were simply shot down like so many worthless objects, each of the licensed life-takers trying to outdo the others in the butchery, I mean that's a powerful statement, and um, and it was a statement put up by um, a group from the AFL-CIO and the United Mine Workers of America, and it's dedicated um, September 10th, 1972.
1: Well, you said in your book that the uh, the creation of that monument was controversial.
0: It took forever for well, something was, to unfold. Well, and that's and and, and that's an important. Issue. I think it took seventy-five years for some sort of memorial to be, um, to be created there, and so. The issue is why. So, um, so in nineteen oh three, the UMWA said, made a statement that the workers at Latimer and the Latimer massacre was something that was very important to the UMW and the and the strength of the UMW, and we ought to memorialize it, right? And so they did some fundraising, and they raised money. And what's interesting is that most of the money that they raised came from outside of Hazelton and not in Hazelton. And there were attempts to construct a monument, an obelisk, you know, the first design, it was 18 feet tall. Um, the next design, it was thirty feet tall. They had the cash to do it, but then they wanted to put it in Latimer, but Latimer was owned by the coal company. And so it didn't be, uh, so it, the land wasn't sold off until the late 1930s. So they couldn't put it there. Then there was discussions about, well, maybe we should put it by the cemetery, the St Stanislaus Cemetery. It never happened. There was discussions about putting it in, t- um, in Wilkes-Barre, because uh, that's the county seat, and then there was discussions in the newspapers. Well, we really don't want it here because maybe the workers would organize here and they would protest here and would bring uh, a motley crew <laughs> in- into the area, so we don't, we don't want it here. And then, then it c- disappears from, from the newspapers um, and I think part of it is the red Scare. You know, people are afraid of unions, they're afraid of the Eastern Europeans, they're afraid of the the Red Scare and communism in the 1910s, right? Um, because of the Bolshevik res- revolution that's that occurred in in 1917 and, and so and and so uh, people sort of back off um, supporting. Labor in the commemoration of, of this. There's a, there's a 1936 or 37 newspaper article that describes it as a riot, you know, the, the the Latimer riot. So is it a massacre? Is it a riot? And so that sort of gives you a flavor about how history changes and and how perspectives change too. And then in the 1940s, there's a man named. Uh, A local historian who's wrote a lot about Polish and and Polish history, um, and his name is Ed Pinkowski. And um, Ed did a few oral histories, and then he wrote this pamphlet or a booklet about the Latimer Massacre. Limited printing. Not much distribution, but it sort of sat there as documentation of of some of these oral histories of uh some of the men who were there at at the Latimer Massacre. It's it's uh but it's it, it sort of disappears. Um you know, a few people in Hazleton own it, a few people in, in Latimer own it. And then there was a historian, Victor Green, um, who wrote about the Slavic Strikes and the Slavic Communities on Strike, I think it was called 1968, and he f- found this booklet, and so he actually wrote a few paragraphs about the Latimer massacre in, in his book, and so that's sort of w- the first breath in in. Uh, reinvigorating and bringing to new life the the memory of, of Latimer.
1: You, you say in your book there was a, an annual
0: memorial in Latimer, and that they stopped doing it. it well, and and it started again too. Mm. So um, the memorial was created in 1972 with that inscription that that I read. Um, and there was a state marker also placed next to it. The Roman Catholic Church at St. Mary's in in Latimer, on September 10th every year, they had a memorial service at at the place at the uh, at the memorial. Um, I've read different different versions that there uh, there was a mass and then there was a supper afterwards or a gathering before, and then a mass and. Um, Maybe as many as two hundred people would show up for this. So it was in seventy-two it was still important to the to the local community. Um and then in the early two thousands, um a lot of the Catholic churches, some were disbanded and some had to reorganize in northeastern Pennsylvania because the populations were decreasing and, and, and so forth. And there was a hiatus for a few years um, for this memorial service at, at at Latimer, and then it picked up again. And so the hiatus was about five years or so, and the high, and it picked up again, about the time we started working up there again. Now, did we do that? I don't think so. But um, but it's a, it's an interesting coincidence how um, how the memorial service started again, but. But this time it wasn't just about the Roman Catholic Church, it was a multi-denominational service and, um, and we've recorded it and it's on YouTube in, in fact. Um, so leaders from the different churches uh, participate in the, the memorial service. And the last one I went to was a couple of years ago and I'm assuming that it's still Continuing up there. I mean, so the clergy who I spoke to were, um, who were responsible for it, were very pro labor and thought it was very important that the church sponsor and, and uh, remember what happened at, at Latimer and in a way to support the working people. And if you go to Hazleton today, what do you see? Hazleton um, is a very different place than it was 10 or 15 years ago so when I first started going to Hazelton over 10 years ago most of the downtown was was closing up Um, a few stores were were still there Um, you know Jimmy's quick lunch uh, we could get great hot dogs and then there's a great Italian bakery there too um, just a few doors down and then a lot of stores were were closed and what what happened in about two thousand was that the state of Pennsylvania created these um, economic zones to spur um, to spur th- development in, in the economy, and and a lot of these box stores moved moved there where they have their fulfillment centers, mm-hmm. like Staples and Amazon warehouses. Uh, warehouses, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you get something that's um, from Amazon and it's stamped Pennsylvania, chances are it comes from Hazleton, right? Um, And what we saw starting in the early 2000s is a major influx of Latinos coming into the area. So now today, when you go down the main streets of of Hazleton, you see botanicas and you see um, Latin American restaurants and you see food stores and you hear MUSIC IN THE STREETS AND IT'S, um, it's A VERY DIFFERENT PLACE. And, and um, SO HAZELTON IS NOW um, A MAJORITY, MINORITY uh, CITY. SO 51, 52% OF, of THE CITY IS, is NOW um, um, PEOPLE for, uh, OF MINORITY STATUS.
1: AND HOW IS THAT GOING DOWN WITH THE uh, LONG-TERM RESIDENTS?
0: NOT TOO WELL. You know, so, it, uh, but that's also mixed too, just like the history of, of Latimer is, is, is very mixed. Um, so starting in 06, the city of Haz- Hazleton created this um, this law that made it illegal to rent to um, undocumented people, to employ undocumented people to make English the official language of, of, of Hazelton. There were rallies in the street. Um, the then mayor held rallies and uh, one of the US senators from Pennsylvania was part of the, the rallies. Um, and uh, It created this real fear amongst a lot of the newcomers within, within the community. Um, and then I've also met a lot of people who said, hey, My ancestors came here 100 years ago. They were new immigrants. They didn't speak English. They had the same concerns as a lot of the new immigrants today, the same concerns about work, about feeding their family, about education. And maybe we should support these people because this is what our families went through. So it's it's very divided about how people... Really view the the new immigrant in um, in in, in Hazelton, and um, there's this one organization called um, the Hazelton Integration Project, which has a um, a school called Hazelton One down there, and it was formed by Joe Madden, who was the manager of the Chicago uh, Cubs, right? And a Hazelton native. And a Hazelton native, and so. Um, so Joe Madden comes back a couple of times a year to Hazelton, and he saw what was happening in his community. And he said, um, "You know, I work with Latinos. I coach them. I played with them. Um, I have Thanksgiving dinner with them. And you know what? They want the same thing that my family wanted. And so." he created this organization that's run by his relatives right now who are just wonderful people helping us with our archaeology project as we recruit students from diverse backgrounds. Um, they have this program where um, these students can go to Hazleton One and they could have ESL classes or they there's a playground there, there's a sports complex. They are able to feed people who need nourishment and and so forth. So it's, so it's pretty incredible. And, and so when Joe Madden started this, um, people weren't too happy about that, and they called him an, an enabler, and um, and and that was the talk on on the streets. Um, and so. In 2006, when this law was created, and it was eventually struck down by higher courts, um, there's, since then, within the last year or two, uh, you now can find newspaper articles in the New York Times, or here on radio programs, NPR, talking about the new Hazleton and how Hazelton is being revitalized with the new immigrant population and how the, um, the tax base has increased because there are more businesses and how the downtown is much better off now with the new businesses in, in there. Um, but it's still, um, so that's on the national level, but if you still go through the community, um, there's there's still um, some animosity, you know, about about the new immigrant, and, and I've witnessed that. We have an archaeological field school, and we live in downtown Hazelton, and um, and we live close to the markets. and um, And when I tell people where I where we live during the summertime, they they ask me, "Well, do you carry a gun? You know, are you afraid for your life?" And yet we socialize with our neighbors and we we share food with our neighbors and it's a it's a very different culture than what I grew up. You know, it's a porch culture where people are outside and people are talking across the street and and there's music playing and on the weekends people enjoy <laughs> enjoy their weekends and and it's just a a great experience for me and it's a great experience for our students too to to be a, a part of this and and see what it's like to live in a new immigrant community. We only have about a minute left, and I don't want this to end
1: before you mentioned archaeology
0: a couple times. You you had your you and your students did an archaeological dig in Latimer. We've uh, we've been working in Latimer for several seasons. So um, so part of it, we did some archaeology to find the impact site of the Latimer massacre where we found bullets related to it. But then after that, we were able to um, connect with some of the neighbors in in Latimer. And we specifically worked in the areas where the new immigrants lived. Um, So when I mentioned earlier in the show how the new immigrants were given a plot of land, and so they built their own shacks. And that's where we did the archaeology, not where the double houses are, where the, um, the foremen lived and, and the miners lived, but we did the archaeology where the laborers lived. And, and we did an archaeology, and we've been doing archaeology of immigration and what it's like to be a new immigrant and what the material culture is like and, and the stuff that we find and, and the stuff that we don't find you yeah.
1: know and you found bullets from the Latimer massacre
0: we found bullets from the Latimer massacre dating to the time of of the massacre all around a place where people called the massacre tree for a for a long time and um, a lot of them were impacted and smashed so they they hit something right and we found a tin cup which was probably from a miner that was filled with buckshot holes um, so so it's it's really amazing. I mean, archaeology is really amazing when you could put the tangible to it and, and find this stuff related that we've read so much about in, in history. I wish we could keep talking, but we're out of time. If you want to know more, you have to read the book, Remembering Latimer,
1: Labor, Migration, and Race in Pennsylvania Anthracite Country. Paul Shackle, thank you very much. Yeah, it's
0: been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN. The Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.